Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Defense Department updated its telework policy for the first time since 2012. The policy is permissive relative to the old one, sending a signal that DOD wants to build a workplace culture more accepting of telework. The biggest change in the policy, though, is how it addresses remote work, people working beyond commuting distance from the office they lead or work for. Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis got more from former Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, Matt Donovan. Specific to teleworking policy, historically in the Department of Defense, if you count all and mostly civilians, because military really didn't telework, they just showed up at their workplace. So historically, about 5% of the DOD population was on some sort of teleworking agreement, whether it was the term remote work wasn't used at the time yet. It was teleworking. And rarely did you have anyone that teleworked 100% of the time, which is what we call remote work now. And that's one of the biggest differences in the new policy is remote work really wasn't addressed before, where now it's uh, bifurcated into telework and remote work. If we talk about the policy, and as I mentioned before, when undersecretaries, OSD undersecretaries set policies, you may have noticed that it was just published, but the pandemic was three years ago. Why did Mm -hmm. it take so long, right? That's just part of the processes within the Department of Defense where you have to coordinate policy changes to every military service, every DOD agency. And then although the PNR has a responsibility for issuing the policy, you never issue a policy without the Secretary of Defense getting a chance to look at it, right? But reviewing the new policy, it's not a heck of a lot different than what we had before when it comes to the telecommuting policy. What is new is the remote work and the very specific criteria that they put in on remote work. And then I noticed uh, for the for the hybrid, if you will, or the telecommuting policy, they they say you have to show up in person a minimum, I think it was twice in a two-week pay period like that, which when you think about it is a very loose guidance. One of the things they do is they try to give maximum flexibility to the agency heads, the secretaries of the services and that sort of thing. So I wanted to go through a couple of things. For example, at the very beginning, it says telework and remote work may be used to retain valuable employees, reduce costs associated with filling vacancies, increase work-life balance, recruit employees with specialized skills, etc. Does it sound to you like the department might be more supportive of telework slash remote work. What's your general idea? So I think the recognition that it's it's okay to allow employees and even military members some flexibility for them to you know work in their day-to-day lives outside of their primary job is okay and it actually pays some benefits and that's what they're getting at. So the Department of Defense operates in the same pool of candidates for people to fill positions as corporations do as other public agencies, other federal agencies as well. So we're all in competition for 
skill and talent for people. So if the if the whole environment shifts to the point that the employees have a little more say in where they go, who they work for because of these flexibility concerns, then the DOD has to follow along with that. One of the things I did was I put together a 10-year strategy for personnel and readiness. And now that, and that's a big thing in there is, you know, data dominance that you hear out of the Department of Defense and in, in an environment of strategic competition, all that sort of thing. But one of the main thrusts of the goal was to make sure that we stay competitive as an employer so that we can get the talent we need to accomplish the missions that we have. So I think that the policy reflects that, the acknowledgement that we're in an ever-shrinking talent pool and there's a lot of competition for those same people that have specific talents. If we want them to come work for the DOD, then we're going to have to offer the same compensation as close as possible, the same work flexibility, those kind of things as, say, Lockheed Martin or Raytheon or, or somebody like that, or another federal agency that has opened up their work flexibility uh, mindset, if you will. It sounds to me like the culture is shifting. The department is a lot more accepting of remote work and telework. But at the same time, if we were to talk about the infrastructure, the policy lays out what the DOD CIO needs to do. DOD CIO will have to write policies and procedures for what that's going to look like. And then we have a paragraph for the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security. They will need to develop policies yep. in terms of how to use classified telework devices. So in terms of developing Developing a robust infrastructure. What are some of the challenges? Where do you think we are at in terms of having that infrastructure in place to actually support all of this? It sort of was a shock to the system during the pandemic because a lot of folks who never telework all of a sudden we're thrust into a teleworking situation. So we had to issue a lot of laptops. We had to issue uh, connectivity. And uh, the CIO and USDINS had to worry about operational security, you know, to make sure we had secure connections uh, that folks couldn't monitor. I think we're in a pretty good shape. Now, the threat of uh, hacking and monitoring and, you know, cyber threats and that sort of thing is ever evolving. It takes a lot of vigilance, if you will, uh, for these agencies to make sure that uh, that they remain secure communications, even in the unclassified world. In the classified world, it's a lot more stringent, as you mm -hmm. might imagine. So there are a lot of people that work with classified information that aren't going to be given uh, the option to telework. It's just not going to happen. There's a lot more than there used to be. They can do it by, if you're living in a place that's near another DOD facility and you can go in and schedule in a secure facility teleworking capabilities to get back to your main job. There's more availability for that now than there used to be. I think we're probably in pretty good shape. And in terms of responsibilities, when it goes through what the OSD and the components are responsible for, I'm assuming it's nothing new, but at the same time, does it sound to you like the policy kind of more supportive of delegating at lower levels and kind of leaving it up to the components to figure out how to go about remote work and telework? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. 
setting policy for the loose federation of the Department of Defense, you have to keep it as broad and as flexible as as possible. Uh, It's sort of a push-pull balance that you try to get to. You want standardization. You know, you want to get to the point where somebody or an agency is not off doing something that's so completely different than than everybody else Mm -hmm. that it causes disruptions. But on the other hand, you have to be mindful that each agency, each department, has, they have their own budgets, they have their own requirements. If you put some onerous requirement on them, we used to call them and Congress would do that all the time. We would call them unfunded mandates, right? You must do this, but then they don't give you the money to do it, which causes you to shift priorities, reallocate funds and that sort of thing. So, mm-hmm. uh, when you're putting policy out like that, you have to be mindful of the downstream consequences and especially resource requirements. Matt Donovan, former Undersecretary of Defense for Personnel and Readiness, speaking with Federal News Network's Anastasia Obis. Check out Anastasia's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Excellent. We're we're going through a a culture project at our work. Oh, great. It's it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. 
what have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies. And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. 
And I realized in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way. And I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going? Um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. 
neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.